Oaths Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, welcome to yet another episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast. My name is Rudolf and I am your host and today is Sunday, the 29th of March, 2020. This is episode 13 of season 4. Yes, indeed, we are already more than half uh, into this season. You remember when I talked to you early January in the first episode of this season four, I'm going to do a weekly show for 24 shows and that will be called the season here on the Thought Permis podcast in the future. So 13 out of 24 already. Wonderful. And today's name of the show is Unconsciousness. And for a good reason, because my guest today in the interview will be Anthony Peake. And talking about consciousness with Anthony, that's exactly what we should do. More about that in a minute. I hope all of you are well in those weird times. Thank you to be back here on the show. I hope that this show can also give you sometime a bit of a relief from those anxiety hours and from that isolation many, many of us have now to be in. And to all of those who work because they need to work for the good of other people in hospitals, bus drivers, in grocery stores, you name it, there are so many of those people out there thank them all that we have you and that you do your jobs and we all hope it will be getting better soon so i hope that all of you all contributors to the show all feedbackers all friends are as well as they can be at the moment and for those who might be sick or who might be in sorrow or have anxieties well we are all with you and uh, we all strive that this is going to be better hopefully soon well uh, we had a very long show last week uh, with Frater UD being our guest I hope that was nice with you we had very very many listeners so far and of course the show continues to be on as all shows here they stay on forever but already in that first week very many people were listening to Frater UD, I'm not surprised, but I'm happy that in spite of the length of the episode, you all seemed to like it. Um, in those times, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's uh, maybe also the time that you would like to go back to older episodes. What do you think? I'm sure not all of you have listened to all the older episodes, but they are all still available. So why don't you go on the website? www.thoughthermes.com that is t-h-o-t-h-e-r-m-e-s.com 
and search around a bit. You can find, download or stream all the shows there and you find all the show notes and get a little bit of a view into what's in those shows. There is a page for each single show on the website. And on that website, you can, of course, also drop me some feedback, which I really always like to get them. I must say this week you were quite good. I got a nice little number of feedback, but it can always be more. And I promise I reply to each and every of your questions or comments or whatever you have to say. I'll make sure that you get a reply from me. So maybe also this is the time when many of us have to be home for more than they really like to be home to think about getting this web this um, podcast sorry this podcast a little bit more interactive um, what do you think it might be a good idea so if you have ideas on how we could do that maybe do a call in show one day or well i've already something that i announced to you last week question and answers to some of our guests so if you have other ideas if you have ideas what you would like to see on a more interactive approach to this show do let me know drop me an email on info at thothermis.com or go on to facebook or twitter and drop me a note there it's much appreciated or even on youtube of course you can leave comments having said that um I want to remind you that we were speaking about this question and answer episode that's going to come with David Beth, who also did that wonderful episode 11 for us two weeks ago. And um, so just to remind you, uh, we are expecting, David and I are expecting your questions that you have to him because he received already quite a number uh, directly and we want to collect them here. Um, and we'll prepare then after Easter a special Q&A episode. So until Easter, until Easter Sunday, which is the 11th of April, you can send me on info at thoughtservice.com or directly to David uh, across the channels that you might know and have. Otherwise, you'll find them on the show notes. You can send us those questions and we'll make sure to reply to them. Great. Wonderful. So before we go any further, I want to thank a few people who have since my last call last, last week to become a patron and to support this show have followed my call. I told you last week we had eight patrons only. Well, thank the eight, but we had eight patrons only last week on Patreon. Well, now this week, I'm happy to say we are up to 13. So that's that's quite an increase. That's quite good. So thank you to all those 13, the old supporters who have stayed with us. One of them has increased also his support. Thank to him in a special way. And those five new supporters that we have. Um, but it's still some headroom there. I think we have now 13 patrons with 2,500 listeners each week. Hey, some of you out there could still make that effort. I know it's difficult in these days, but it's also difficult for us to support, to, to carry on podcasts and to produce them. It costs money. And I've created that special for the special difficult times a tier with just $1 per episode. I think for many of you, this would be a possibility to help. Well, thank you. 
Right. So we are now going to hear, yes, some music. You know that because this show is also marked by its music. And today it's a kind of a special thing because you remember I also called some for some music from you, from those of you who are musicians themselves. There are quite a number and one by one, slowly they come out. I have also somebody next week and this week I have somebody who wrote to me after that call for music. That call is still open, so don't forget if you have music that you created that you want to be played on this show, do get in touch. Today we're going to hear music by Gabriel R.S. Gord. He is based in the Bronx in New York City. And, well, I don't think it's easy there at the moment with all that's happening in New York City with the coronavirus. And we send Gabriel and his family all our best wishes because um, they, his, he and his wife, they had just their baby boy and are now home safe. And we really wished him all the best in those difficult times, especially in New York City. So Gabriel is from the Bronx and he has created a group called Under Stress. Well, it's a project. It's not a group. I'm sorry. Under Stress is an electronic music project of the genre Stark Wave. So, and he draws his inspiration from surrealism and from occult themes. So Stark Wave, that's sometimes quite heavy stuff that is rather meditational. It's rather dark as music. And he has already featured several uh, albums uh, uh, with, his, with his project Under Stress. And today he gave us three, uh, three titles uh, to play for this show. And the first is from his album Psychochronometrics. Psychochronometrics, yes, that's what it's called. And the piece itself is called Inner Ritual. So I think that's quite a good, uh, quite a good title to start the show with today. Um, all these pieces, this one and the others we're going to hear, are between five and six minutes. So lean back. Get into some meditative state because I think that will help by getting that music into your body and that's what Starkwave uh, expects from you. Okay, Gabriel R.S. Gord's Under Stress. We hear now Inner Ritual from Psychrochronometrics. Enjoy.
Inner Ritual from the album Psychochronometrics by the project Under Stress, directed by Gabriel R.S. Gord. I hope I pronounced that family name correctly, Gabriel. Otherwise, I apologize. Righty, so, dear friends and listeners, we are now going to delve into today's interview. And as I said earlier, our guest today is Anthony Peak. Now, Anthony, he is some very special person and he is maybe a bit the different type of guest than those we have regularly here. He is not a practicing occultist or esotericist, even though he's extremely knowledgeable, of course, in the field and he knows an awful lot about it. No wonder he was a child that instead of reading Batman and Superman, uh, as he writes on his website, he was immersing himself in learning things of the most arcane nature already. And when he was 12, he came across a copy of The Sky People by Prince Lillipur Trench. And that's where it all started. And he is, has always been very interested and knowledgeable, not only in esotericism, but he has a scientific approach to most of the things that he uh, works with. He has become very famous. He has written 11 books so far. 
He is one of Great Britain's very best known authors in the domain writing about consciousness. And that's why the name of today's show is also called On Consciousness. His latest book, The Hidden Universe, for example, he writes, uh, he, uh, he tries to answer the question to us about consciousness as a root source of the material universe. He talks about ancient belief systems, subjective human experiences, but also about neurology and neurochemistry. He has uh, talked and he will talk in this interview about the matter of hallucinations, of how also some things like migraine and other states of mind too can become very difficult for the people who suffer from them, but how they are also a kind of open door of perception to other worlds. The relation between consciousness and reality is something that interests him and he will talk to us about. And we even talk about the question if consciousness can exist outside a living, so to speak, entity. What is real? What do we mean by that? So, All those questions we try to answer in this interview, and I think this is going to be very interesting for you today. So I don't want to keep you any longer from that talk with Anthony Peake. Um, as always, we will have a short break in the middle of the interview. Today's interview is approximately the length you are used to, so a bit over an hour. So after about 30-ish minutes, we'll come back here and we'll listen to another piece of music by Under Stress. But now it is up to Anthony Peake. Here comes the interview. And now I'm very happy to welcome somebody very special and with whom I'm going to enter with Sotherbis a little bit of a new field, something that I would have wanted to do for quite some time. And it's a great pleasure to welcome here on the Sotherbis podcast, Anthony Peake. Anthony, good afternoon to you in London. Good afternoon. Absolutely. It's great to have you. Um, Anthony, I don't think it is necessary to introduce you to our audience here, but maybe let me just give a few little words about what you're doing. You are best known probably as a writer of very interesting books about consciousness, about um, the, 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 about the, the material universe coming out of consciousness, about how you have in your research uh, found out how the ancient belief systems have influenced that, etc. So many topics that are extremely interesting that, of course, also involves things like out-of-body experiences and paranormal activities. We're going to talk about all this here today. But before we do that, Anthony, what I would like to do is that you give a little introduction about yourself to our audience, maybe. Um, Biography, yes, but it's more what made you the Anthony Peake who does all that research and work that he does today. Why did it come together? What brought you to the place? Why are you Anthony Peake that you are today? What a wonderful question. Um, well, I suppose I've been interested in, in matters esoteric since I was a, an early teenager. And the reason for that was when, when, I was, uh, when I was 12 years of age, I came down with a about of double pneumonia 
And uh, during that period, I had a, a series of what I would say extraordinary experiences in terms of altered states of consciousness. Because as you know, in the crisis of pneumonia, you you end up having some quite incredible hallucinatory, hallucinatory states. Mm-hmm. This fascinated me to such an extent that um, when I recovered from it, which I never had a bout of ever again, um, I became interested in consciousness and esoteric matters. And I managed to start reading a a wonderful part work called Man, Myth and Magic, which was published in the UK in the mid 1960s. Uh, remind me about who that was. I know the title, but I can't recall. But yeah, it was, it was a series of magazines published by um, Purnell, I think. Right. And it was mm-hmm. artwork. So you actually, every week you, it came out as a magazine and then you put it mm-hmm. into a folder and then, and then you collected it from there. And it, it generated in me a great interest in the occult and uh, the mystery schools and also religion and the sociology of beliefs. So when I got the opportunity a few years later to go to university, I decided I would actually specialize in the sociology of religion and also specialize in um, religious movements in, um, funnily enough, in, in Germany after the Thirty Years' War and the the unusual post-Reformation groups that came up at that time as well. And also the the uh, the witchcraft trials, um, the people like the, the, the writers, the Malus Maleficorum, these kind of things. And I was also involved with a group of um, individuals where we used to go ghost hunting when we were at university. We used to spend time wandering around the Warwickshire countryside looking for cold spots and haunted locations and things. And then I did my postgrad at the London School of Economics and became a business consultant, a management consultant. But all of my life, I'd always wanted to just write a, bo- a book about my interests. And all through that period of time, I continually read so many different subject matters. Um, and I'm a, an absolute avid reader. And I also have the the peculiar ability to probably remember most things I read. So I tend to have what is a, a, a loosely eidetic memory. So I can tend to bring together salient facts from various areas, which means that my approach has been quite different to um, my area of interest. I then had the opportunity back in 1999, where I'd done a business consultancy out in Eastern Europe, and I was in a position that I could spend some time writing a book which I'd always wanted to do. But I didn't know what I was going to be writing about. This is a strange thing. I just wanted to write, but I didn't know what about. And it was while I was sitting in front of the blank screen, waiting for inspiration to come, I had a strange sensation and I felt the edges of my fingers start to go numb and my, my lips start to tingle. And I realized I was starting a classic migraine attack which is something I'd had for various times during my life. And during that migraine aura state, which is a kind of vaguely altered state of consciousness, I had the most alarming deja vu sensation that I'd sat in front of that computer screen many times before making the same decision. Hmm. When I came to, I realized that my subject matter initially needed to be deja vu and what exactly deja vu is. And then from then on, I was guided literally um, by something from my, in, within myself, because books came to me when I needed them, the most amazing synchronicities took place. And in, a, in exactly a year's time, I had a book. And the book had actually, the book I'd almost discovered, I, I, I use the analogy, it was like Frederick Schliemann when he discovered Troy 
I wasn't writing a book. I was discovering it. And all the information just fell into, 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 into the right places. And in the end, I had a concept which was called Cheating the Ferryman. Um, and since then, I then fairly quickly managed to get a publishing deal with a publisher. The publisher was very keen to take the book. Um, and then in 2006, the first book came out, Is There Life After Death, The Extraordinary Science of What Happens When You Die, mm-hmm. which which his original title was um, Cheating the Ferryman because the original book was far more based in esoteric law. I was particularly interested in the pre-Socratic philosophy. I was interested in the occult traditions throughout the Gnosticism and these kind of things. Mm-hmm. But the final version that came out, that was watered down. It took out a lot of the, the more extreme areas. But um, funnily enough, if anybody's interested, I'm actually reading on Facebook the original version. I'm doing it Facebook Live once a week. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. started last week, and I'll be starting again tomorrow with Chapter 2, which if you're interested in checking in uh, on this. Okay, that's great. Um, uh, just for our audience, when you say tomorrow, that'll be two days ago because uh, we broadcast this on Sunday and recording on Thursday. So just so people can orient themselves and find you. It will, it will still be there. And the following sure. Friday, I'll be doing it again for chapter three. Mm-hmm. But, so that's my idea. So that's a little bit about the background of me, not in any great detail, obviously, but um, somebody I just, I am fascinated by the huge questions. What am I? Why am I here? What is consciousness? I seem to be something perceived something but that's all i actually know and now now i've written 11 books on the subject and i've got a slightly clearer position now on where i think i'm going with this but it's still an exciting adventure that's great that sounds great well um maybe we, we can make that a bit uh Not more clear. Sorry, not what I want you to say. But um, you said you said um, you're interested in all those phenomena around consciousness and life and where do I go, where do I come from, and at the same time you are an esotericist. May I say it like that? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not obvious from the first approach when you take a book that has been published by you and and you read the back uh, the back page maybe and see what it is about you can kind of sense that it goes in that direction but it's not always obvious on the first approach um is that on purpose do you want to take people in who maybe would be would be put off if you went too directly into the story of esotericism, et cetera, or is it for other reasons? It's probably true that um, I think if I went in directly into the areas that really interest me, I think it possibly would not necessarily alienate people, but it would probably frighten them off a little bit. Yeah. Um, as an interesting aside here, one of the most curious events took place a few years ago when I was approached by an organization called the Servants of the Light, um, which was set up by Israel Regardi and, um, and I can't think of Dion Fortune. Uh, Dion Fortune. And, um, then Dolores Ashkoff-Novitsky, she was yeah, the, the leader who, exactly. And she, she was a guest on, on the show, uh, two years ago. Little... Oh, what a wonderful lady. Dolores, absolutely, absolutely delightful. I, I absolutely, And she invited me, she contacted me and said that she'd read my book, The Daemon, A Guide to Your Extraordinary Secret Self, which was the second book. Mm-hmm. And she said, it is extraordinary what you're writing about to the extent that, for instance, she decided that my first book would be required reading as part of the Servants of the Light training. Right. Um, 
She then invited me along to be involved in an event they were doing up in the north of England called the, um, the Ceremony of the Banners. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were, I was allowed to, to witness a couple of initiations there as well. And I was actually up with Dolores when she was doing these presentations and things. And Dolores announced and she said that Anthony has done the science of what we we have known for 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 years because she sent then sent me her she has a a, a, a thing called a course in Western magic which yes. I'm the owner of um, mm-hmm. which she went through and she said Anthony's concept of the daemon is something that we have known about and it is important that the science is done and as a, a long answer to a short question that's always been my approach I work on the approach of doing the science first because I believe that extraordinary it's not me it's Martello Trui that said this extraordinary claims need extraordinary truths mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, extraordinary proofs and this is exactly what I do I do the science I do the quantum physics and I mean I seriously do the quantum physics I don't just use the quotations I actually dig in deeply and make it my business to understand mm-hmm. um, and in doing so I lead the reader in from the hard science into the the more esoteric areas of the implications of what quantum physics is telling us about about the true nature of reality and the close relationship between the mind and external reality and how the way the mind can affect external reality mm-hmm Mm-hmm. So that's very interesting because by that you already also explained a little bit my uh, cheeky question why you maybe not cover it up but you 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 lead people in by another by another type of approach because in a way that's what you're doing also here you then take the reader into the the scientific approach first in order then to go further i would say and as most people would do the other way around they say well well this is a phenomenon uh, that is there and I can give you an explanation for that. And you, you do the other way around. Was that your approach from the very beginning or is that something that you've learned in time? Again, it's the approach I think that my daemon has wanted me to take. Um, I sometimes feel that, that the daemon itself, my, my extraordinary secret self, for want of a better term, my higher self, my whatever we want to call it. The higher genius, some people call it. The genius, yeah, the genius is the other term. Um, this, this is something that has driven me and I find absolutely extraordinary um, because of the way it works and the way it's imminent in my life. And it, it jokes with me. I mean, it is strange. I'll give you an example of this. Um, I was needing to... I was researching mitochondria. Now, mitochondria are interesting in the sense they are they are organelles. They are, they are um, things that are inside the cells of the body. Now, the interesting thing about um, mitochondria is that it has its own form of DNA. It has mitochondrial mm-hmm. DNA, yeah. and the mitochondrial DNA is carried through the female line. Exactly. Now, in my, my original version of the book, I was really going to some quite interesting areas in terms of um, uh, the development of of, of life. I then, this was in 19, this was in 1999, 2000, maybe. I then realized that I really needed more research. And I thought to myself, in my library, who is the writer that is likely to have written about this? And I realized it was Richard Dawkins. Okay. Right. Now, I'd, I'd read all of Dawkins' books. Mm. And, 
um, because I make it my business to know what skeptics are thinking as well, you know, because mm-hmm. it means that I can engage with them on a one-to-one level, on a level playing field. They don't like me. They hate me. They don't like me. <laughs> they, they, expect, they expect to have a bit of fun with me, and then they back down, and they realize that however far down the rabbit hole you want to go in terms of quantum. No, I'm going to be naughty. They expect to have the usual exoterricist in front of them, right? They do. And they, <laughs> yeah. they get somebody explaining Heisenberg's uncertainty principle to them, and they suddenly think, ooh. Whoa, yeah. not sure about this but anyway yeah. so Dawkins I've read all of his books and I thought to myself which one of his books would have mentioned mitochondria in any way at all because he's a biologist and I picked his book The Blind Watchmaker and as I picked the book up I remembered the last time I'd read that book and it was 10 years before on a Greek island called Simi now one thing I never do is I never dog ear pages I love my books and I never damage them As I took the book off the bookshelf, I noticed that one page had been dog-eared by my earlier self 10 years before, and I knew exactly what was going to be in there. I opened the book, the dog-eared page, there was the reference to mitochondria. Not only that, but that's the only reference that Richard Dawkins makes to mitochondria in all of his books. My earlier self had actually left me a clue to my future self as Mm. to where I was going to be going. I I found that. Extraordinary. That's is extraordinary. It's extraordinary. I, I I mean I want to dig a bit deeper into that also because it was the title of one of your very early books, Damon. And why are you using that term? Because it is you have mentioned the higher genius, the higher self, and, and others, and that's how it's usually in the Western tradition nowadays called. And I find personally the genius and the daemon a very interesting and a little different approach. So maybe you could also give us your personal approach on what it is exactly and why you use that name. Yeah, I was quite precise on that in that I wanted to reference the Gnostic tradition, the Gnostic religions. I was particularly interested in the belief systems of the the the, the mystical schools of the three major Western religions. So, for instance, I wanted to reference Sufism within Islam. I wanted to reference Gnosticism within Christianity. And I wanted to reference Kabbalah in terms of Judaism. Now, all of these traditions seem to come from one group of individuals, the Gnostics. And of course, Gnostics is from Gnosis, which is knowledge or to know or to understand. And they were a schismatic Christian quasi-Christian, but I think they go back further than that, probably back to the ancient Greeks and to the Stoics. And this is a belief system whereby it's an explanation for theodicy. And theodicy is, in in, in the terms of, of the Christian religion, it's why evil exists, how it is that a good God could create an e- evil in the world. Why would a good God create evil? And the Gnostic solution was that the God of the Old Testament, Jehovah, Yewa, Yaldabaoth, is in fact the demiurge. He is the false creator. He is somebody who believes he's God, but he's not. And he's created this, as Philip K. As um, Philip K. Dick called it, the um, the Black Iron Prison, or as uh, William Blake called it, the Mind Forged Manacles, which is this kind of reality that we're trapped within. Now, the Gnostics believed that there was an element of the reality behind the reality that was trapped in all human beings. The reality behind the reality they call the pleroma. Right. And they argue that there's the shard of this other place behind that's trapped within us. That shard they called the daemon. The daemon is the part of us that is part of the greater something. 
Now, this daemon was known from ancient Greek times, and the word daemon is from daemon, which is the ancient Greek term for it. Right. And they argue that all human beings have two aspects to their personality. There's the higher self, which is the daemon, and there's the lower self, which is called the idolon. And the idolon has its word root in the word idol. Okay. And the idea is that when we are in this reality, we are effectively have got idolonic minds. But occasionally the daemon, the higher self, can communicate with us if the doors of perception are open in certain ways. And I argue that people who have, like I have, um, classical migraine, people who have temporal lobe epilepsy, people who experience schizophrenia, the, the doors of perception, the, the, the oldest hooks, the idea, are much more open and the entity can communicate in greater detail. Now, I really had a long, hard think about whether I use the classic term daemon. And I felt that the word daemon had literally been demonized. By, <laughs> literally, by, by, exactly. Yeah. Literal. Yeah. Because, of course, it's a tutelary spirit. It's, it's a guiding force. It's what the Romans called the genius. Yep. What other traditions have various words for it, the Judaic, it's the Ruach, the Ruach and right, the Dharma, yeah. isn't it? So mm. it's a tradition that's there within within Sufi tradition. They have exactly the same tradition. Now, we know that this then carried through into the esoteric traditions of, of the, the Kabbalists. It carried through into um, probably into the work of um, the people who are interested in the mystical traditions. It's probably found within... Uh, within Masonic law, I know that it's cited by certain writers of the mysterious mystery traditions all through history. It's also probably within Enochian magic. We know that in, within Enochian magic, the idea of actually trying to raise the Enochian entities is the same kind of thing, which is to actually find the God within, which is the day. So I was insistent on this. And also I came across a wonderful book written by a guy called two guys called Tim Freak and Peter Gandhi called the Jesus mysteries. Right. And in this, they discuss about the Damon tradition in that as well. But then when I started digging back, I discovered people like Socrates and so many famous individuals had had this inner Damon. And then of course, as my knowledge of esoteric traditions, most esoteric traditions, they are talking about finding this being within. Right. So that's the background to it. Right. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Okay. And that's the moment when the internet suddenly broke down just for a few seconds. But we'll carry on right away and you'll see why I did not edit that out. Okay, guys, this was now just funny because my network here disconnected in the middle of that interview, which has actually never happened with the software I'm using, normally very stable. And well, here I am back again with Anthony and he, I just told him that and look what he had to say. This is, it happens so often to me. I, we have a term with, my, with people they do interview, we call it the archons. We have our contacts whereby I can bring down the, the most so solid sets of circumstances and pieces of software will just not work. For example, at one stage a few years ago, I was interviewing Robert Bruce, who is an Australian out of bodier. Right. And the whole of Aust the whole Australian web went down. It literally <laughs> died. And well. it happens too often for me 
to believe it's coincidence. And it's a running joke with people that know me. This is a running joke. My On my own podcast, Dia Nunez, who is my um, uh, producer over in the United States, when she watches this, she'll just be smiling and just there. Uh, <laughs> we're used to this. We are absolutely used to this. <laughs> well, so if it happens again, we'll just reconnect and continue. Um, you, you mentioned twice now, and uh, if you don't want to talk about it any further, that's fine. Just let me know. But um, I'm very interested in what you said about classic migraine and you also mm-hmm. mentioned epilepsia. Um, can you expand a little bit on that? Um, because I have heard theories about that already several times. But as you have a maybe more scientific approach also to the matter, if it's possible with migraine, because it's a very still very unresearched um, 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 health problem. But maybe you can say more about that and how it relates to your approach to consciousness. The I, I'm fascinated by I, I called it the Huxleyan spectrum. And by the Huxleyan spectrum, I mean that going back to Aldous Huxley in his 1954 book, uh, opening uh, the doors of perception, he suggests that under normal circumstances, the brain acts as an attenuator. The brain is a reducing valve that takes out the greater reality. And under certain circumstances, certain neurological conditions seem to break down the brain's ability to act as an attenuator. It seems to stop it's stopping you perceiving the greater reality. Now, I argue that the doors of perception can be opened wider by certain individuals, certain individuals who have certain neurological conditions. And I believe that the first neurological condition that starts to open the doors is, is classic migraine. Now, classic migraine, for instance, classic migraine is migraine with aura. People normally get migraine. They do not get aura states. I'm quite the opposite. I get the aura state without the headache. In fact, I haven't had a a migraine headache for a long, long time. But what happens is my perceptions of reality start to break down. Um, I go, I I effectively go blind. I get a white spot, which a scotoma, which actually just gets wider and wider. So I only have periphery vision. Mm -hmm. I then start seeing, um, seeing kind of flashes of light and, and various other things. I then get profound feelings of deja vu. I get profound feelings of almost floating outside of my body. Um, and also reality seems to cease to be as real as it seems to be. Now, I'm by, I might get very weak effects, but I know other people who have classic migraine. And in this case, I would suggest if you have the opportunity, there is a book called Migraine written by Oliver Sacks, the, the, the <laughs> yes. Anglo-American um, psychiatrist. It's a fascinating book. And there are two German guys that do a lot of research. There's the Migraine, I think his name is. There's a Migraine Aura Institute in Germany where they look at the migraine auras. Now, I believe that these just give us glimpses of the reality behind the reality. And this is why I believe people who are shamans and various other individuals will normally show either migraine effects or they will show elements of my next level, which is temporal lobe epilepsy. Mm -hmm. Temporal lobe epilepsy and people experience temporal lobe epilepsy, the doors are much wider open. And I have probably about 30, 35 people who experience temporal lobe epilepsy around the world who regularly give me feedback about their experiences, including a guy called Myron Dial, who's based in, um, in America, in California. His experiences with the other world are extraordinary. His veil between this world and that world, he, he smashes through into the alternate world all the time. His daemon is manifest in his life all the time, and his daemon is called Charon. Mm-hmm. 
um, and he approached me about this. Then you have people have schizophrenia where the doors are blasted wide open and they are accessing the numinous. They are, they are accessing entities coming through from altered, from different states of reality all the time. Their doors are wide open. I also argue people that have um, Charles Bonnet syndrome, individuals who experience autism, people who experience Asperger's syndrome, also people who experience, and this is specific of interest to me because my mother experienced this, people who experience um, uh, Alzheimer's. And again, I do the science on Alzheimer's because this is intriguing. Alzheimer's, the amyloid plaques that break down the brain's ability to communicate literally destroy the neurons. They explode the neurons and they destroy structures inside the neurons called microtubules. And microtubules are again, the almost the receiver mechanisms whereby we, we perceive reality in a different way. It's as if these, these illnesses break down the doors of perception, kick them open. Right. Now, this is very important, and it's a very important point I need to make to you now at the moment because I, I meant to mention this to you. One of the, the two people I work very closely with this on two, are two Austrian researchers. Mm-hmm. Okay, They're based in the Tyrol, and it's yeah. Dr. Engelbert Winkler and Dr. Dirk Prokol. And they have invented a little device called the hypnagogic light device. And I read about that, yes. Oh, good. Because this machine, I believe, opens the doors of perception and facilitates this because they can place me, this machine can place me into migraine aura state almost immediately. Within seconds, I'm in an aura state. It, would you call that those states for you and for others like an overload of the brain to make it very simple? Is it, or is it something... It's, 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 it's in, in terms of there is, there is a term that is used in researchers with autism and it's called the, 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 um, the, the intense world syndrome. And you'll see young children who have autism. They're literally, they're like this. Mm-hmm. And it's because the, the, the information is coming in from everywhere and the filters are shot. The, the filters are gone. So what they're doing is they're seeing things and everything else. Now I have friends who's, who's, children or their sons, one guy in particular, son has schizophrenia and temporal lobe epilepsy. And we've watched this lad. He's, he's, he's in a different time scale. Even his, his perception of past, present and future are shot. It's as if he's living in the past and he's living in the future. And this is why people who have temporal lobe epilepsy, it's normal, it's known in, historically as the diviner's disease. And it's the diviner's disease because they perceive the future. Schizophrenics. We know von Bleuler when he was doing his research in schizophrenics in Zurich, on the Zurichsee, in his in his research institute. He mentioned time and time again about schizophrenics who were slightly ahead of time, mm-hmm. as if that bubble of time perception. They were about two or three minutes ahead of us. I was going to ask how long. Okay, two or three minutes. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, we have it in movies. Uh, for instance, in um, Minority Report. The, the Philip K. Dick novel that was turned into a movie with Tom Cruise. You have the precogs in that movie, and the precogs have exactly this same ability to see what's called the um, the the the. the oh, it's, there's a technical term for it where the present just becomes wider. The present okay. moment expands out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in my book, Opening the Doors of Perception. I go into this in great detail. And I think this is where mystics have their skills. Mystics train themselves to get into this altered state of consciousness. 
Is this what also some people call the flow state? Would that be related? Correct. When you're in the flow state, particularly sports people talk about their ability to anticipate and know where, say, a ball is going to go. It's they broadened out. And I think this is all to do with the pineal gland excreting endogenous, that is internally generated dimethyltryptamine. And I think the pineal gland synthesizes from melatonin into what myself and one of my associates called metatonin, which is endogenous DMT. Now, there is a technique that the Indians use called Kekara Mudra. And Kekara Mudra is to try to get yourself into an altered state of consciousness by tasting at the back of your throat something called the the ambrosia, the nectar of transcendence. Now, this is intriguing because at the 49th day of gestation, when the embryo is in the womb, the pituitary and pineal body sit at the back of the throat. Mm-hmm. Okay. They then start to move from the back of the throat to the center of the brain where they split into the pituitary and the pineal body. Mm-hmm. Now we know from ancient traditions and esoteric traditions, it's called the palace. They, they actually use the term that the pituitary gland and the, 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 the pineal gland are called the, 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 the golden palace. The reason that that this is the case is that the epiphysis, which is the single unit when it moves up, it leaves a very, what's called Rethke's Rethke's cleft down the back of the throat. Now, I believe if I'm right, that the pineal gland excretes dimethyltryptamine, this drips down the back of the throat and can be tasted. And Kakara Mudra is training yourself to put your tongue to the back of the throat to taste the nectar of transcendence. This is... And people get this taste sometimes when they go into very deep mystical states, mm-hmm. it's a metallic taste. People also explain that when you go into certain points of meditation, you get into this state. Now, dimethyltryptamine, therefore, is, is our modulator of reality, but it allows access to the broader states of reality. But mystics have known this for years. Mystics know how to do this. They know techniques whereby they can do this without having to take an external DMT or ayahuasca or or, or or other entheogens. And of course, the word entheogen means God within. It's finding the God within. So this is, again, right back to the esoteric traditions. Manly Hall was writing about this. Neil Gland, you guys have known this for years. And this is what the servants of the light were trying to tell me. You know, it's, it's, you've got it. You've got it. And my books do the science, but you guys have already, you're already there. A very interesting man. And also somebody a bit different from those people we mostly have here on this show. And I find this is a very good thing. Uh, and he also found this is a very good thing because if I understood him well, it is the first time that he is talking to an audience which is mainly interested in occult and esoteric themes about his research and about his project, his books. So we are very happy to have him here with us. But now, yes, well, there's one thing I wanted to mention. You saw that moment where about 12 minutes into the interview, suddenly our internet broke down, right? So. This is normally something I would edit out. But when we came back, uh, when the internet came back, 
basically a few seconds later, but it just interrupted everything and then we had to restart the recording. Um, you heard what Anthony had to say and I didn't want to edit that out. It was just too much fun to hear and that's why I left it in. It was fun and interesting, to be honest, not just fun. Okay, dear. Now let's go on with a piece of music and this time it is called Pharaonas. Um, this is from the album Pending by Understress, an uh, electronic musical project by Gabriel Gord from New York City. Actually, he lives partly in New York City and partly also off-grid in a natural home in Nova Scotia, Canada. So somebody who knows both sides of our world a bit and that's always interesting. So Faronas from the album Pending by Under Stress.
I think I read that a little bit wrong when I announced that song. It's called Farosnas. Um, well, to be honest, I don't know what the word means. That's why probably also I read it wrong. But the title of this piece we just heard is Farosnas, and it is from the album pending by that musical, electronic musical project, Under Stress. Very impressive, I think. So let's carry on with the interview with our guest, Anthony Peake. And without further ado, we'll go there. But just before that, you know, after the interview, right away, there will be our third piece of music again by Under Stress, who is our special musical guest today. And Gabriel Asgurt, who has given us his three pieces from three different albums for this show to play. The third album we draw a piece from is called Industrial Halo. And that other Stark Wave album by Under Stress um, will take the track called Grinding. So that will be right after the second part of the interview, which comes to you right away now. Let's go straight in and go back to Anthony Peak. Now, you have touched a field uh, right now where, where you basically said that what the brain, what consciousness, what the human evolution brings us is the source of, uh, and you say that like that in your book, of the material universe, right? So of um, perception, basically, I would, I, would, I would think you mean, or maybe you mean something else. And could you maybe, uh, starting from where you just were now, maybe starting to explain that, I think that's one of the main subjects of your latest book, The Hidden Universe, if I'm not wrong. Um, so could you maybe put this a bit into that, what you were just saying and take it from there? Yes, it's the idea that the universe as we perceive is a facade it's 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 mind created mm -hmm. and it's mind created in a kind of feedback loop this is why i use the term and again you guys will get this term i'm quite precise i use the term egregorial yeah and i use the word egregorial in two ways that i have the concept of the egregores and then the egregorial world an egregore, as you know, is a thought form that can be created by human beings concentrating collectively to bring about a manifestation within reality. Right. Now, I was astounded three years ago when a guy that came into my social circle was a guy called uh, Brian Murray. Brian Murray was one of the top British theatre producers. Sadly, he died 18 months ago. But Brian was explaining to me, Brian has already be, always been interested in the esoteric tradition. And one of his associates was a guy called, um, oh, he was a Danish occultist. Mm -hmm. um, and his name, this is extraordinary for me. Normally I remember, but I think as it's the third interview I've done today, my brain is starting to go. <laughs> um, um I will remember. Sure. But anyway, this guy visited Braham, and Braham and him were discussing about the idea of thought forms and the idea of, of, of beings that could be created. And this guy was explaining, he said, it's like the concept of beauty and the beast. These are things that they, they, they follow themes, the messages within messages within the fairy stories. And he said, well, whatever happened to the beast? And this guy 
Arnold, Arnold Herningstadt. He's right. Arnold right. Herningstadt. Right. And Herningstadt turned around to him and he said, the beast exists. And Braham said to me, he said, it was uncanny. I looked around and there was a chair. And he said, the chair shimmered. And this entity just appeared in the chair. And he said it was a being and it was an archetype. It looked a bit like the Medusa with its with its head of snakes. Then it changed and morphed into various other things and then leered at him and then disappeared. Now, as he said, he could have hypnotized me, but I felt that this was something he had drawn in from somewhere else. Now, we know from the techniques of, of people like um, uh, uh, um, uh, D., and and Kelly and the various other individuals, you go back here to Enochian magic, yeah. and you go back to Elisa Crowley and the creation of Awas, and and the creation of the entities that they were drawing out from this other reality. In my new book, I try to do the science of how this can happen, and I take it right down to the quantum physics. I take it quite down to the level of the reality that we perceive is created by what's known as the collapse of the wave function. Subatomic particles from anything, any subatomic particle, if it is not observed or does not be, it's not being measured, is in a state of what's called superposition. Mm -hmm. It can be, it's, 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 it's in a statistical wave function and it statistically can be anywhere in the universe. And That's the, the famous double slit uh, experiment. Right. right, right. Exactly like the double slit experiment. The idea is, for instance, that you can fire a group of particles through twin slits. As long as the particles are not observed going through the slit, even though you fire them one at a time, you will get what's called an interference pattern, the other side of the twin slits. This is because it's a wave. And that's the statistical wave, okay? It's a statistical wave where the subatomic particles smear out like a wave and you get on the back like you get if you use light because you can do this experiment with photons. You can also do it with electrons. You can also do it with molecules. They've actually recently done it with a buckyball, which is 60 molecules. It's 60 atoms. It's a big molecule. So they were intrigued because they wanted to know if you fired one particle at a time, how was it? going through both slits at the same time to cause the interference pattern. So what they did was they placed a measuring device on one of the slits. Mm -hmm. As soon as they do that, the interference pattern disappears and you get two bands as if particles are going through one or the other. It's as if the subparticles knew they were being watched. This experiment happens 100% of the time. It happens every time you measure the device. Now, what do we mean by a measurement? We mean somebody is observing the results of the measurement, which means there's a direct relationship between consciousness and external reality. So certainly the old mystic tradition of being able to meld your environment by the act of will suddenly becomes more real because all subatomic particles are like this. And if all subatomic particles are like this, it means everything that's in physical reality is in effect influenced by the act of observation. That's also a bit like the idealistic philosophy of the 18th century and 18th, 19th century, where they say that the idea creates reality and mean it in a very 
physical way, not just not not Abel, just uh, Abel Kant. You know, exactly. the, um, there you are. Berkeley. All of these guys were saying this, but now modern science, but modern science has known this since the 1920s. You know, we know that subatomic particles, when they are entangled, when they're placed in close proximity, when they're, they're, there's one one of your researchers, Anton Zeilinger at the University of Vienna. Yes, who I know personally, yes. Mm. You do? You know Anton? Yeah, sure, sure, yeah. Oh, my God, really, he is my hero. Yeah. The work he was doing at the University of Innsbruck and then subsequently mm. the University of Vienna with yeah. entangled particles. The yeah. world should know about this. You know, Absolutely. this guy is revolutionary. You right. know, the, the distances he's now been doing in terms of entangled particles are phenomenal, you know. So it means that the reality we think is out there is far more complex, far more mystical. And as a, another great Austrian, Erwin Schrödinger said, sure. Schrödinger was German. Schr- was Schrödinger, uh, he was Austrian, Schrödinger, yeah. It wrote, didn't he write towards the end of his life a book, What is Life, where he was interested in the linkage between subatomic particles and biology and the linkage of biology and everything else as well because most of the 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 guys that were involved in quantum physics in the early years towards the end of life became mystics you know again um uh Heise- not heisenberg um uh, pauli wolfgang pauli mm-hmm. he wrote, wrote books on synchronicity which people forget they think pauli's exclusion principle and how powerful a scientist he was but he was working with young discussing synchronicity and coming up with a model the a causal model of synchronicity and this is because quantum physics opened up his mind to the mystic but but why do you think now i think this is a very interesting topic why do you think that this is being kept away why does normal science so to speak um not adopt that more as you say this now have been a hundred year old facts that we see in science why do you think it's still not really recognized by the by the broad public let's call it like that it's Because it, it, we want to believe that there is an external reality out there, which there is a one-to-one relationship between what we perceive and what is out there. That is known as naive realism by the scientists. So we know that it's naive and we know just how the brain models internally your visual system within the visual cortex down here. We know that there's what's out there. There is something, but what it is, we're not quite sure. And it's probably synonymous with a holographic um, simulation of some description. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so why isn't the, the, the public? Well, to try and explain to somebody that a particle can be in two places at the same time is counterintuitive. To try and explain to somebody the idea of non-locality. You know, for instance, in 1981, Alain Aspect and Dalabard at the University of Paris Institute of Optics first first proved scientifically what John Bell of CERN had said in 1964 regarding Einstein's EPR paradox. And he proved it mathematically. Then in 1981, Dalabard and Aspe proved it in a laboratory. That should have been headlines around the world. That should have been the biggest piece of scientific news ever. Nobody knows about it. I even debate with people. People are not even sure what year it took place, even scientists. And it's really? because, yeah, even scientists you'll get. It's 1981, 1982, or they'll just say in the early 1980s. I asked Basil, Basil Hiley, who worked with David Bohm about this, and even Basil wasn't sure. He thought it was 1981. 
Mm. And because it's kept under, because if everybody started to realize that the, 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 the universe out there isn't quite as solid as we believe, what would this mean for the control mechanisms? What would this mean for so many things? And I believe that people, it scares people. People go into denial. You know, I talk about this to, to normal general general members of the public, and they go into denial about it. Mm. Even though I will show them the papers and I'll say to them, this is real. No, it's not. They're stuck in the science of, of um, pre-1900, when Max Planck, in December 1900, Max Planck came up with his idea of quanta. Right. Then in 1905 with Einstein and the photoelectric effect and the duality of light and the wave-particle duality. That's when it all stopped. They want to be back there in the comfortable zone, whereas esotericists and mystics are just saying, well, you know, this is the stuff we've known. We're delighted you're doing the science, but we've been manipulating this for years. I find, I don't know if you agree, and we're getting a bit off track here, but I don't mind because I think many people out there, especially nowadays, will will want to follow us with that. Um, um, what you just said that, the world before 1900 was so simple to be explained and it could be made so perfect through that because you just had to organize it the way your thinking worked. Uh, in, you could put things into drawers and it was like that. And when you change the drawer, that the, something might change and you knew what. And this is now gone. And what we experience exactly in those days now today with, uh, with the famous coronavirus uh, and, and all of that, kind of puts everything into question because even this highly organized world that we live in and it is organized and partly well organized but suddenly realizes this is too much we cannot deal with that anymore because if we close down we have economical problems if we don't close down we might not have economical problems but another problem and suddenly this whole thinking doesn't work anymore and we need to go into a more I wouldn't like to call that esoteric thinking because that's the wrong term, but maybe you have a better term for it into a kind of cloud thinking and not straight mm. chaotic thinking almost. Well, I think it's the argument that you should keep an open mind on these things as long as your brain doesn't fall out. And this is the issue, you know, that we need, we need to keep very close to the science. We don't need um, people making wild claims. The science is telling us that these things are strange and these yeah. things are you know, the I think that that's a very important point you're making here. We have to follow science. 94% of the universe is missing. The fact that, you know, we have dark matter, we have dark energy, we don't know what it is. We have subatomic particles that come in and out of reality. And these these things happen. We know that the sun shines because of, 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 quantum, um, of, of quantum tunneling. You know, that objects can be in two places at the same time. This is why the sun shines. You know, these are things that are so basic, but they're counterintuitive. And it could be that our minds aren't advanced enough to actually think out of the mystery of, of what quantum physics is telling us. But we have to because we because quantum physics can explain a lot of the extraordinary experiences that people have. You know, the idea you can extrapolate from quantum physics to say, well, if, for instance, my argument here, and I've used this a few times, is that if entanglement is, 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 is as it, science is telling us. If at the beginning, first billionth of a second of the Big Bang, everything was a singularity, 
Mm-hmm. And it expanded out from that singularity. Effectively, at that point, everything was in a state of entanglement, which means that every object in the universe, every subatomic particle in the universe is entangled with every other one. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I had a meeting with um, Professor Jeff Forshaw, who's professor of physics, youngest professor of physics at Manchester University. And we did an event in London 10 years ago together at the National Theatre. Over coffee, he turns around to me at the place where they split the atom, where Rutherford and Co. split the atom. He turned around and he said, of course, we know that every electron in the universe knows the location of every other electron. Okay, which means now that the idea of a holographic nature of the universe, where holograms are like Russian dolls, where the hologram, the the, uh, entirety contains the whole. But then again, you go back to occult tradition. Isn't this what occult tradition has said forever? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's hermetic tradition at its best. It's hermetic right? tradition, isn't it? It's yeah, hermetic exactly. and everything else. It's what they were saying. Absolutely. Sure. May I ask you a very personal question? You don't have to answer it once again, but uh, are you also a practitioner in the, in the esoteric and occult uh, arts or not at all? Not at all, no. Not because I'm not interested. It's just mm-hmm. I've got so much happening that I've not got the time. <laughs> I've been invited many times. I know that various groups are fascinated by my work. And this is the power of – it sounds vain, but the reason I get so frustrated is I think I am honestly the only writer that can do an interview with you about esoteric traditions, and we resonate because there's so many ideas we can buzz about. And then I'll be doing an interview with a quantum physicist about quantum physics, or I'll be doing an interview with a neurologist or about neurochemistry. And we need to include everything. If we are to understand, we can't be siloed. You know, quantum physicists will turn around and say, oh, those psychiatrists, they don't know what they're doing. And if you turn around and say the occult tradition and the occultists, oh, no, they're all crazy. No, they're not. No, they're not. They are. The hermetic tradition has been just as scientific. It's observer-based. And people observe what happens. It's like the alchemical tradition. The alchemists right. were not crazy. Right. You know, they knew what they were doing. They observed and they invented the scientific method. Mm. You know, you know, you look at the work of people like uh, Dr. D, you know, and, and how systematic they were in what they did. You look, I was talking recently about um, the work of the latter day um, mystical schools and individuals such as Kenneth Grant and people like that. And the work they were doing, you know, this is this is not crazy. People are not stupid. They will only do something if they get worth from it and they see it's effective. Absolutely. And one of the most important, well, I don't want to call it dogma because it's non-dogmatic, but of, of, of occultism is that you have to know and not to believe that that's that, that's uh, one of Good the main point. core cores. Core ideas, I'd say, right? Yeah, to know, to know the knower, to exactly to instinctively know it's right, even though your your training and your logic and your rational mind cannot accept it. I believe this is where I come about the egregorial, because I believe that what happens is we create, in many ways, our sensory world. So therefore, if my prejudices say that telepathy can't exist. It doesn't exist in my phaneron. It doesn't exist in my world because I don't accept it. Whereas people who believe in telepathy, believe in remote viewing, believe in out-of-body experiences, they experience them because they're crea- they're collapsing the wave function to fulfill that phaneron, yeah. to, to fulfill that egregorial. 
now you went exactly into the field that I wanted to go next. So you, you, you presented that. <laughs> um, um, one of your books is called the, the out of body experience, but of course the out of body experience is just a part of what you just said of uh, lucid dreaming of, of other kinds of perception. You, you said you were doing even ghost hunting at the time when you were a kid, basically still, um, are we talking about parallel universe here? Um, what's your take on that? What's what, how does consciousness work in that field? Is it opening the doors to receive another part of the waves that we normally don't see? Uh, what is it? Can you, can you explain how yeah. you see that? I would, I again have the term egregore and I call the, the areas would overlap the liminals, the liminal areas, the overlap, the, the Sufis have a wonderful term, which I can't remember now, which is really fascinating. And I'm fascinated by the writings of, um, uh, Oh, French, French guy again, Brain's gone. Robert, Robert uh, Guinot, Guinot. Guinot? No, not Guinot. Um, no. Oh, um, Henri Corbin. Yeah, Henri Corbin. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And his ideas of the um, the, mount, the mountain of quaffs, I think, is within the Sufi tradition and the idea of the reality behind the reality. Now, one of the things that stunned me in my research was reading the esoteric Sufi traditions to discover that, for instance, um, the concept of the jinn and the different types of jinn and the jinn were created from smokeless fire. Now this intrigued me, smokeless fire. What does this mean? This suggests to me a plasma and a plasma form. Now, again, one of my associates is an American ghost hunter come paranormal researcher who's an ex Catholic priest, um, called Paulino. And Paulino is intrigued by the entities he comes across when he does his research, where they seem to be like plasma forms. And it's again as if plasma, which of course is another state of matter that is different that you find only in the sun, yeah. which and it seems to be a liquid form and it's a physical form and it has its own form of energy. And it's, it's highly energetic, so it's it's a really high energetic. Yeah. Correct. So is this where we 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 when we're drawing in these things, these creatures need to create a plasma form in order to come through, and they come through from the egregorial realm, what I call the pleroma, into the kenoma. And again, these are specific terms used within Gnosticism. They pull it through, and our minds can create these creatures. But there's almost a symbiotic relationship between these creatures and the human mind. And it seems this is when I'm using the term egregore in that sense, because I'm using the analogy of tulpas and thought forms, like the way in which uh, Elister Crowley in a, a Thelema, the way he was creating these thought forms and drawing them through from somewhere else. Right. As if they use us and they use our hopes and our fears. And it's almost as, 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 as Eno calls them, you know, they're almost like parasites. They feed off fear in one way or another. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the thing to me is we need to take it right back to the idea of, of external reality and what external reality is, is this a projection or whatever. But if we go back to the, the old belief systems of the ancients uh, from the pre-Socratics onwards, and we go to the idea that Consciousness is a singularity and that there is only one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively. Mm. And that consciousness is kind of the higher level. So you have my concept of the Edelon, the daemon, what I call the uber daemon, 
which is the collective collective unconscious, the Jungian collective unconscious. Mm-hmm. And then behind that, you have the the the, the oceanic consciousness, which the, the the which would be called Brahman, which the the Kabbalists would call the Orain Sof. Yes. The idea of this something. Now, again, I'm working closely with a young Canadian uh, researcher called Samantha Treasure on this, and we're going to be writing a paper on this in the future of taking this this idea of this model, the daemon, the uber daemon, and everything else, because I'm mirroring Jungian modeling here, um, but taking it for, further forward. So is it, is it the, the base reality that really – the, the the concept of of, of um, pandeism, the idea that we are all embodiments of this greater something mm-hmm. that we are embodied in, and we suffer from anam we suffer from amnesis that the Plato, that Plato argued that we are immortal beings that are suffering from amnesis, and the mystery schools create anamnesis, which is the loss of forgetting. The loss is partly partially <laughs> of what you actually are and what you what you believe, and I think this is what esoteric traditions are. So we're draw, I'm drawing these ideas forward and saying, right, we can do the science here, we can do the neurology here, and I'm getting so excited. And to be honest, I'm loving this interview because it's the first time I've been given the opportunity to talk about esoteric beliefs. I've never had the opportunity before because I've never been. Right. To be- anybody who's as knowledgeable as you are about and you're picking up on the nuances and you're one step ahead of me you know what i'm gonna what i'm gonna say next <laughs> well thank you thank you yeah thank you um with with what you just said about about um and then have amnesia about about previous lives if you want to call it like that or about being immortal um but that is still a very anthropocentric view, of course. Yes. Um, yes. Does that mean that, and I'm not talking about our planet as the world, but as the world as a whole, as the universe, are we then also coming in your thoughts, in your theory, in your, in your way of thinking into extraterrestrial life? Oh, totally. I mean, there's a whole second chat. The the whole second half of my book deals with the role of extraterrestrials. What do we mean by extraterrestrials? Are we really talking about intraterrestrials? Are we talking about life forms that actually impinge upon us very closely? As again, as the Sufis would argue that the world of the jinn is as close to you as your jugular vein. You know, the idea that these are far closer to us. And not only that, but in the book, I argue taking the ideas of Jacques Vallée and various other people to say that the, the, the egregorials, as I call them, have been with us since the earliest times. They've just morphed. They change. They, they, they're the tricksters. They, they are everything from the, 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 the fae, the fairy folk, um, the, the, the hidden kingdom, the hidden commonwealth. As it was known, these creatures have been with us for an awful long time. They're in cave paintings across the world. The question is, what are they? Are they just emanations of ourselves? Or is consciousness all part of this greater field that we all interface with in different ways? For instance, when people take dimethyltryptamine and they're in altered dimethyltryptamine facilitated altered states of consciousness, they encounter entities that seem to be independent of them. I'll give an example of this. One of my associates is involved in a big research project at the moment at Imperial College in London, Dr. Carl Smith. And he's been taking DMT intravenously 
under controlled conditions. And the first time he took DMT under these conditions, he found himself in the DMT zone. And this entity comes over to him, prods him, looks him in the eyes and said, you should not be doing this this way. Please don't do it this way. It then backs off. Two weeks later, he then comes back to the normal plane. Then two weeks later, he's back again in the altered plane. The same entity comes over and says, I told you last time, this is not how you do it. And as he said to me, this being was independent of me. This wasn't a thought projection. It was real. So the question is, what is their reality and how does their reality work? And in my book, The Hidden Universe, I discuss this because I think, for instance, entities such as the ones that were manifesting possibly during the Skoll experiment in Norfolk, we have Imperator and uh, Rector and Imperator, which were a series of experiments done in the 1880s which were done by the Society for Psychical Research. We have the cross correspondences which took place in the 1880s and 1890s. These entities seem to be communicating. We've got the electronic voice phenomenon. You know, is this just parallelia or is it something more? Are the communication channels opening here? In which case we need to listen. And I think the extraterrestrials and the greys, I mean, I'm doing an event still, it's still on hopefully, an event in California at the end of May uh, called Contact in the Desert, and I'll be sharing a platform with people like Whitley Strieber and various other contactees who have had con direct contact with Alien Greys. And they are intrigued and fascinated by my model because it's the first time somebody said, hey, guys, this is like the mystic tradition. You look at how Elisa Crowley described um, Lamb, and you look at Lamb, and then you look at the classic Grey. The only difference is the size of the eyes. Lamb is a Grey. There is no question mm -hmm. that is a great. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what are we talking about here? And this is why I'm so excited, because I think the bits are coming together. We're getting yeah. together. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. Interesting. Well, we could also talk about ritual. I don't know if you know the writings of Jung when he says that um, if people experience rituals, like in ceremonial magic, for example, or in Freemasonry, um, that um, the individual who experiences that ritual projects part of his own consciousness on the different officers of the ritual. So if you have a, whatever, the master of the lodge plus the two uh, supervisors, just to give them a neutral name now and, 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 and the master of ceremony and so on, each of them has their own, of course, realm in which they act in that ritual. And Jung says that they all represent to the individual who experienced that ritual, part of his or her own consciousness and that's split up in those seven most of these seven officers who then um by that split up he experiences the ritual in a different way i don't know if you know that theory but it's i don't yeah but that's it that really fascinates me because of course we know that young in his red book discusses his daemon and discusses yeah. guidance that he actually yeah. received now yeah. i'm also a trained psychometrician um, and I apply psychometrics in business environments mm -hmm. you know, in terms of, of, of personality profiling and everything else as well. And, of course, Jung, the basis of the, the whole psychometric Raymond Cattell ideas from the 1950s and 1960s were based upon Jungian, Jungian types. And, of course, we then have the Jungian archetypes, which, of course, are almost like the platonic forms so, so, so the ideas of Jung, I'm getting more and more interested in Jung. And one of my associate friends, good friend of mine, is a guy called um, Dr. Um, uh, uh, Dr. Um, Funkhauser. 
Mm-hmm. Dr. who's an American who lives in Bern in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Now, his PhD is in, is in holography, mm-hmm. but he's a Jungian analyst, and he's one of the world's leading experts on the deja vu phenomenon. And he is a very interesting guy. You really should get him on your show. Right. It's really, really right. wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, and he and I have discussed Jungian analysis as well. Now, one of the things that we're planning to do, now this, you, you might be very interested in this, is my book, two of my books, one of my books was bought by a Greek publisher. The Hidden Universe was bought before it was published by a Greek publisher. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I then met the Greek publisher in London um, a few months ago. He was so intrigued by what I was saying, he immediately the next day bought the rights to another of my books, my first book. He went straight out and put an offer in for the new book. So two of my books will be coming out in Greek in, in, in later on this summer. But what we're planning to do is to actually recreate Plato's cave in the original location of Plato's cave in the hill of Hymetus, which is about 17 miles south east of Athens. In a yeah. And of course, I'm going to be talking about the Platonic mysteries. I'm going to be talking about Plato's cave. I'm going to be talking about the whole Eleusian mysteries and how the esoteric tradition comes through the Eleusian mysteries and carries through. So it's going to be a, it's going to be huge. We're going to be talking about this. We're having a conf- conference about this in the next few days over Skype. And Carl Smith, who's the guy that's doing the DMT experimentation, he's going to be there. The Austrians, the two Austrians, right? Yeah, 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 get involved because yeah. um, we've already done one event where we tried to recreate it in a very haunted group of tunnels in the north of England um, last April in Dracolo. Drake Cave, and this place has poltergeist activity and everything known poltergeist activity you know right fascinating yeah fascinating really well i'm sorry that we are already at the end of our time here this was passing by so quickly but maybe we should start one day repeat that uh, and and carry on with and deepen that talk even more one last uh, one last question anthony to you um which uh, maybe you want to to give us some idea about other than that project you just mentioned maybe there's some book project out there that we should have should be on the watch out for or something else would like to say that we can expect from you in the future? Yeah, my plan at the moment is that um, one British university is very keen for me to do a PhD based upon my publications and my ideas, which I'm under discussions about at the moment, but that looks like it's highly promising. So it looks like my next next project will be my PhD. Um, But in that PhD, I'll be drawing in an awful lot of these issues. And it's a matter of, it's almost an embarrassment of riches because there's so many themes here that I could go down certain tracks. But myself and my, my associate, Samantha Treasure, were thinking about going along the lines of writing up the first academic paper, which we're going to be expanding out on the Damon and the Uber Damon concept. Mm-hmm. And also something else that I'm coming up with called the Cacodemon. And the Cacodemon is the, 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 the shadow the Jungian shadow side of my Damon model. So the idea is that we have, and we're going to be looking into multi, uh, disassociative personality syndrome. You know, how many consciousnesses do we have? Are we just a singular consciousness or do we break down? And are these consciousnesses then, can that explain telekinesis? Can this explain possession? Can this explain a lot of the, the weird and wonderful experiences that people have? So that's going to be one of the papers. I'm also thinking of writing a paper with another associate of mine, on other aspects of the idea of embodiment and the idea of um, 
what I call no cheating the ferryman hypothesis and near-death experiences. And I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. The question in near-death experiences, the being of light, is the being of light the daemon? You know, your own higher self that actually greets you at the point of death. So there are a lot of areas here that I'm actually going into. But I do feel that these days, you know, I'm my 66th birthday is in a few weeks' time. So I know that I've got a few years left at the moment uh, to keep this dynamic interest in the world. But I'm working on it. But I think that there is so much excitement. And it's just been wonderful talking to you, Rudolph. It really has. I really genuinely have enjoyed this thoroughly. It has been really great. Well, thank you. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you, Anthony. And well, as I said, hopefully we can repeat it at some point. Would be yeah. really lovely to do that. Final point, if anybody's interested as well, to contact sure. me. Okay. I'm on Facebook as Anthony Peak. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm also now building up quite a following on Instagram. Okay. Right. So on Instagram, I'm cheat the ferryman54. Okay. So remember, I'm 66 years of age. Born in 1954 and Cheat the Ferryman is my hypothesis. Also, these podcasts I'm going to be doing over Facebook Live and also on Instagram, I'll be doing more and more of them. So when you go on, if you go on to Anthony Peake, it'll be a link. But I also have Anthony Peake Consciousness Hour, Mm -hmm. my own podcast. And we're also going to be broadcasting that over Facebook on the Anthony Peake Consciousness Hour. And also I'm recording some of the earlier shows and showing them as well to build up anticipation. So guys, please join us. It's a, it's the, the water's lovely. We're having a fantastic time. And I want more and more people from the esoteric tradition involved in this because you can value add so much. Absolutely. Well, thank you. That That's great. And of course, all those links that you just mentioned, I will put them also on the show notes of this show on the website of Thought Thermy. So if you are sitting in a car driving, don't write them down now. Wait, go home and go on the website and you'll find them there. Okay. Well, Anthony, thank you so much for, for being with me today and with us today. It was lovely. And um, Thanks for all the work you do and uh, well, continue. And uh, it's important and really highly interesting. Thank you. Thank you, Rudolf. Thank you very much.
Grinding from the album Industrial Halo by New York-based electronic music project Under Stress, created by Gabriel R. S. Gord. Thank you, Gabriel, for your work. Thank you for sharing your work with us here for this show and all of you who are interested to hear more and i hope it's many of you should go to bandcamp but first go to the website of the thought thermos podcast because that's where you're gonna find all the links to under stress and you will also find all the links to the work and to the to the, all the books and everything we spoke about with anthony peak and i really want to thank anthony for being with us here today i think he enjoyed being with us, but also we really very much enjoyed having him here today. It was a great interview and I'm very grateful that we could have him as the first Esoterica Cult podcast uh, on our show. Well, that will be the end of today's episodes, dear friends and listeners. And I thank you once again for being with me here today. And of course, I do hope to have you all back next week and I especially hope that you're all going to be safe and especially healthy also next week and to all of those of you who maybe have a little bit of cough or worse than that I wish you all the best and we all think of you here and it'll all be good we hope okay so what I still have to do and want to do is to announce you next week's guest. Next week, we have another personality from Great Britain. But, um, well, I'd say it's, it's, he's a man who's come so much across the whole world that we hardly recognize him as British anymore. But no, his name is so British, Scottish to be precise. Christopher McIntosh, Christopher McIntosh, Dr. Christopher McIntosh is going to be our guest. He is a writer, historian, translator, specializing in the esoteric traditions of the West. So a perfect fit. Um, Christopher, he has written many highly interesting books on the Rosicrucian movement, on the Fama Fraternitatis, on the Rosicrucians as a movement altogether, also about the Age of Reason, about heroes books, about Eliphas Levy and the French occult revival. And the latest book that he produced is a book called um, Beyond the North Wind. And there he talks about, um, well, about paganism, I'd say, because paganism is something that is very important to him also personally. And he talks about what he calls the fall and rise of myth of the mystic north. So from Rosicrucians to the mystic north, that's quite a large topic. And we're going to share his thoughts, Christopher McIntosh's thoughts with you here on the Thoth Hermes podcast. And that'll be next week in episode 14 uh, of season four already and it'll be coming to you on april the 5th all right then that was it for today dear friends and listeners and the only thing that remains for me to say is take care stay tuned hear you soon